Turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And when you get there, put your finger there and then go over to Nehemiah, where we're going to start in Nehemiah. We've been involved in this series. The series has been titled, When God's Burden Becomes Our Vision. There was one time when uh, my son, after I got through preaching, he came up to me. We were driving down the road together, went home, and he said, Dad, how high can you count? I said, well, son, I really don't know. How high can you count? And he said, I can count to 5,342. I said, well, son, why did you stop there? And he said, well, because you stopped preaching. (laughs) So you stay, listen a little bit better than that, and we'll get out of here a little bit quicker than that, okay? (laughs) When God's burden becomes our vision, this has been a great series. How many of you have already heard at least one of the messages from Nehemiah? Most of you here, okay, so I don't need to go back and do a lot of review, but for some of you that haven't been here, let me just tell you, we've been involved in a series, and it's the series on the life of Nehemiah, and we've been talking about how Nehemiah lived a very dangerous life. He was the chief cupbearer to the Persian king, and we kind of reflected on how he may have looked somewhat like a Jack Bauer in that day. Okay, But we need to always remember who the king, who the hero of the story is. If you've ever watched the series 24 with Jack Bauer, you may miss who the actual hero is in that little mini-series. A lot of you would say, well, the hero is Jack Bauer. No, the hero in that mini-series is Justice. See, we all love it because Jack Bauer brings justice. And so Jack is always pointing to justice. Are you with me? And so when we look at the life of Nehemiah, we look at the writings of Nehemiah, you may think that Nehemiah is the hero. No, Nehemiah is always pointing to the hero. The hero of the story is who? Jesus. See, if you've watched any of the the series 24, and if you haven't, uh, Paul Davis has copies of all of them you can get from him. But when you may watch that, you may never see the words justice You may never see a character that's named Justice, although that's the hero. You may never see the words here of Jesus. You may never see the name Jesus. But see, Nehemiah continues to point to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate hero. You can find Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And Nehemiah is pointing to Jesus in this sense. His job was to take God's burden, and it became his vision, and go and bring Israel back into relationship with God. Are you with me? He rebuilt the city. He rebuilt the walls of the city, rehung the gates, so the people would come back, and that was an environment that people could come back into relationship with God, be in presence of God. That's what the temple represented. It was a place that you could come and be in God's presence. Well, see, Jesus is the ultimate temple. Because no longer do we have to go to a place to be able to spend time with Jesus. We just go to the person. And so Nehemiah is constantly pointing at Jesus. And we got through a couple of weeks ago, the last time I preached, we got through chapter 6. The title of this message here is The People Are Coming. And you're going to see why I've titled it that way. But we got through chapter 6 where Nehemiah has finished the walls. He's built the walls. He's hung the gates. And man, it was a great message because we see where the enemies gave up. They said, finally we realized that we were never fighting against Nehemiah. We were always fighting against his God. And we came to that point that we realized we never had a chance because of the God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Folks, if you've got Jesus Christ on your side, the enemy doesn't have a chance. Isn't that good news? He doesn't have a prayer. And God is raising up a standard to push him back. And one of the things I liked about Nehemiah in chapter 6, though, was when the enemies were trying to draw him back out into the desert to try and kill him, he says to them, I can't leave what I'm doing because I am doing a great work. Now, all he was doing was just putting bricks down on mortar. All he was doing was just building a wall and bringing wood in and hanging these wooden gates. That's all he was physically doing. But in his heart, he said, listen, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a work that is an everlasting work. I'm doing something that's far beyond me. The structure that I'm building has very little to do with what God is doing. This structure is going to be a place, Nehemiah is saying, where millions of people are going to come into the presence of God. And they're going to be able to bring their families in here, and their families are going to come, and they're going to be able to be raised up on the biblical principles of God Almighty. And their children are going to come, and their children's children are going to come, and they're going to be able to hear the word of God. Nehemiah says, I'm doing something that's far beyond me. It's an everlasting work. Listen, folks, what we're doing here at Lighthouse everlasting work. I'm telling you, it's going to go far beyond you. It's going to go far beyond me. It's going to go beyond. It's going to be handed off to my children and to your children, but it's going to go far beyond them. And listen, folks, I'm telling you, there are going to be millions of people. Their lives are going to be changed because of the work that God is doing right here. And we get to be a part of it. We're already seeing hundreds of people. Just this year, we've seen over 180 people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right here. I mean, that's good news. That doesn't count the thousands all over the world. As we got testimonies from Pastor Warren Samuel last week, there are thousands of people through the ministries and the missions that we're a part of that are bringing people into the relationship of Jesus Christ, and we get to be a part of that. And I'm telling you, if that doesn't light your fire, then you're wood wet. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. So let's start off here in chapter 7 of Nehemiah. And let's just kind of catch up on where he's at because the walls have been built, the gates have been hung, and so now Nehemiah gets to start something else again. In verse 5, he says, Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. So he says, okay, let's see, everybody is not here just yet. Let's go out and get them, and let's bring them all in now that the city has been completely rebuilt, and it's ready to start bringing in communion. He goes out and gathers all of these people that are on the exterior of the walls, and he finds an old registry. He said, I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. Now, the rest of chapter 7 is listed the roll call that he had. I mean, basically, Nehemiah got this, and he said, okay, this is what's written in it. I'm going to take roll. Are you here? He calls out, is the Davis family here? And the Davis family says, yes, we're here. He says, is the Ellenberg family here? And he says, yes, the Ellenberg family is here. And he goes to 95 families in the rest of chapter 7. And I'm not going to read all of that, okay? Is that okay with you? Because that would take about 15, 20 minutes, and that would be time that you would never get back for the rest of your life. So <laughs> we're going to continue on here. Now, let me tell you something that's important. I love these little rhythms that God is allowing us to be a part of. 
in verse 70, in verse 71, in verse 72, you can go back and read it. Nehemiah just says, hey, by the way, this is what the leaders, the top leaders gave to this building campaign. And he lists himself first. He says, I gave, I had my accountants break this down. He says, I gave as the leader almost $400,000 to this. And then in verse 71, he says, and then the other leaders came in and they gave over $4 million. And then he says, and the rest of the congregation came in and they gave over $4 million. We didn't know that this was in here when we decided to do what we're doing as the top leaders coming and giving today. And next week, it's going to be the rest of the leadership that are going to make their commitments. And after that is, I mean, it lines up with Scripture. I'm not that smart. You guys know me. And so this is really neat to see what God is doing, okay? So let's get on to chapter 8, verse 1, where Nehemiah says this. This is good stuff. (laughs) This is good stuff. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. He says, now all the people gathered together as one man. I looked this up in the Hebrew, and it literally says, as one voice, as one vision, with one heart. That's what we're doing today. I'm not that smart to plan that in advance. God is. So that's exactly what we're doing today. He gathered them all together for this purpose, though, to read the word of God to them. Let's go on down to verse 5 where he says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen and Amen. You could preach an entire message just on the amens. That basically meant, so let it be done. The Lord has said it, so let it be done. But what Nehemiah was doing here was he gathered everyone together, just like we're gathered here this morning. And he said, here's the word for the hour. He brought in the priest, and Ezra read from the word of God the applicable word for the hour. That's what I want to do here this morning, okay? So turn with me to John chapter 4, and I believe this is the word for the hour. I believe this is what God wants us to hear this morning. Now, I've preached on this before, but... Like Peter has said, it's good for me to go over these things with you again. I believe it's extremely important for us to look at this. I'm not going to take long. Stay with me. Chapter 4, verse 3. Let me set this up for you. In verse 3, it says, uh, He left Judea, being Jesus, and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, let me set this up for you. It would be kind of like a play. You need to know the context of where we're at. Jesus has just finished doing ministry down in Judea. I've got a map here. Go to that next slide. If you can see, Judea is at the very bottom. Jesus has finished there, and now he's going to go to Galilee, which is due north, but he has to go through Samaria. Are you with me? Now, Samaria was the armpit of the region. Nobody liked to go to Samaria. I mean, people would go around a long way so they didn't have to deal with the Samaritans. It was like they were at least second-class citizens, and a lot of the Jews thought of them basically as dogs. But Jesus chooses to go up north through Samaria. It would be like, to give you a geographical background, it would be like if you're in Texas 
and you have to go to uh, Kansas, you may have to go through Oklahoma <laughs> to get to... <laughs> I didn't mean anything by that. I didn't mean anything by that. Jesus has got to go up through Samaria, bless his heart. And he, he sits down at this well in the city of Sakar because he's tired. He's been going a long ways. So he sits down here, and let's pick it up in verse 7, where it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. See, his disciples had left him early because they've been traveling for a long time, and they go off into the city to get some nourishment. Jesus is there. It's noon. The sixth hour is noontime in the hottest part of the day. So Jesus is sitting down relaxing, and this woman shows up, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritan. Now, this was an interesting deal because not only was she a Samaritan, she was a Samaritan woman. And Jews would not ever talk to Samaritans, much less a Samaritan woman, much less this particular Samaritan woman. That she was even an outcast within the Samaritan society herself. And she probably looked that way. And she was shocked that this Jew would begin to talk to her. It caught her basically off guard. Jesus answers and says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answers and says to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now listen to the desperation in this woman in verse 15. The woman says to Jesus, Sir, please give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here draw. We're getting into the life of this woman. We're getting into her soul, finding out what's going on with her. Number one, it's interesting that she would come out in the hottest part of the day to get water, right? Everyone came in the morning time when the sun was down, or everyone came in the evening time when the sun was going down, because that was the coolest part of the day. But she chooses to come out when no one else is around. And now all of a sudden you hear her say, is there anything that you can give me that will keep me from having to come to this well? She's getting desperate. She's saying, you're telling me there's something that you can give me that I won't be thirsty any longer and I won't have to come out here anymore? Whatever that is, give it to me. And Jesus begins to see into the depths of her soul when he says this in verse 16. He's going to give her a prophetic word, but he's not going to start off with, Thus saith the Lord. He's going to be normal, and he's going to speak to the depths of her soul, okay? Listen, this is important. Jesus says to her, Well, okay, listen. Go call your husband and have him come here. Now, do you think that Jesus knew that she didn't have a husband? Of course he did. 
Go call your husband and tell him to come here. The woman answers and said, I I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you have answered well and said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. The woman says to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you must be a prophet. Well, of course. But I want you to get the magnitude of what's happening here. She's saying, listen, is there anything that you can give me, anything at all that's going to keep me from coming to this well? She just wants to go off and hide. And Jesus is going to get to the real issue, to the root of her life. He says, okay, let's get down to where the rubber meets the road here. Go call your husband. And she begins to confess, you know, I have no husband. And Jesus says, listen, I know everything about you. You've had five husbands. And the one that you're with right now is not even your husband. Jesus is not treating her, though, like a harlot. He's treating her like one of his children. He's not trying to condemn her. He's saying to her, I know your pain. I know what has happened to you. You have been passed from man to man. You've went from situation to situation trying to find out what true love really is all about. You've been trying to find that everlasting drink, that everlasting water that's going to fill your soul, and you cannot find it in the life that you have. But I have it. Church, there are Thousands and thousands of people coming to this area that are looking for that everlasting water. And we don't know what's been going on in their life. We don't know what the enemy has taken them through, beating them up, man, tearing them down, making them just feel awful about themselves in their journey to find out what true love is really all about. This woman is saying this to Jesus, if it's real, If this water that you're asking, if if this water that I can ask for is real, please give it to me. I don't want to come out in the day any longer and people keep laughing at me. I don't want to have to come out in the community and hear people laughing and pointing at me behind my back. I'm so tired of feeling condemned. I'm so tired of feeling worthless. I'm so tired of being the individual of this community that everybody looks down upon. I'm so tired of it. I never intended for it to be this way. I was always wanting to do the right thing. You know, when I was in the police department, you've heard me tell this story before, but I remember a young girl came out into the streets. I was at Harry Hines and Northwest Highway areas where I practiced law enforcement for six years. There was a lot of prostitutes and, and drug dealers and people in that area, and there was a young girl that came out there. Her name was Robin. And not that anybody should have looked like they belonged out there, but Robin definitely did not look like she belonged in the streets. And we began to talk to her, and we said, you know, we had arrested her several times, and we said, you don't belong out here. Go you know, get off the streets. Go make a life for yourself. And she had never listened. One day I got a call, and it was a shooting in progress, which is one of the most dangerous calls you can get. It literally means there's shots still being fired. We pull up in front of her apartment, and there are witnesses still pointing at this apartment. They say, hurry, run inside. They're still shooting. And We kick open the front door of this apartment, and the first person I see is a girl that I had recognized from off of the streets. She recognized me, and she said, David, hurry, run upstairs. Robin is upstairs. I run upstairs with my gun drawn, not knowing what I'm going to find, and it was at that place that I found Robin's body. He'd been murdered. You know, through the help of some good witnesses, we were able to find out who did it, but it made for a real, real long night. And I can remember coming home about 5 o'clock in the morning and 
had my radio turned off and just trying to recap what happened and get it off of me. I, I never wanted to bring my work home, you know, and all of that home to Dana. I just began to remember all the things that Robin told me, how she ran away from home because she was being abused at her house, got into a halfway house, and it was at that place she was abused even more. She ran away from there, and she got out into the streets, met a man who she thought loved her, but he just used her to make money for himself. God really spoke to me that night. He said, David, Robin spent her entire life trying to find out what true love was all about. Just like this woman here at the well. Spent her entire life going from one situation to another situation, one bad place to another bad place, trying to find out what true love is all about. When every one of us in this room, we've got it inside of us and we can share it. That's what she's after when she's talking to Jesus. And she says to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And now she's beginning to inquire of who he is and what's going on. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's saying this. She's saying, our fathers tell us that we have to go to this mountain to worship. But I can't go there. They won't let me go there. I'm really not a part of this community. You Jews say that you have to go to this temple to worship, but I can't go there. I have no hope. I'm in between. I'm worthless. And the devil had really done a number on this young woman. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. woman says to him in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I, who speak to you, He. Oh, that's good. He's saying, woman, listen to me. There's coming a day when you're not going to have to go to this mountain. You're not going to have to go to this temple. No, no. Wait. In fact, there's not coming a day. It's standing right before you. You don't have to go here to worship. You don't have to go there to worship. You don't have to clean up before you come to God. You don't have to get your life right. All you have to do, he's telling the woman, is come to me and my presence. It's my Father. It's me who cleans you up. When you come into relationship with me, you are no longer defiled. Because I am pure. I am holy. And you come in as my child, says God. And you take my righteousness, you take my holiness. Listen to me, folks. A lot of you have listened to a lie that says you can't come into a relationship with God because of the way that you're living. That you've got to stop what you're doing first. You've got to get off of this or stop doing that and clean up so that God will receive you. Listen, God has already received you just as you are. Man, just come. Just come just as you are. And so this is just amazing to her that this has happened. And at this point, Jesus' disciples, they finally show up with the food where they've been, I don't know, but they've been a long time. And they marveled when they showed up that Jesus was talking with this woman. 
Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her watering pot, went her way into the city. Now, I want you to capture this. Jesus is there by himself talking with this woman that's an outcast, and the disciples showed up. Immediately, she begins to feel condemned again. There was no condemnation while she was talking to Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It comes from society. So if you get your identity on what society tells you that you are, you're in trouble. She immediately drops her watering pot and she goes into the city and she says to the men in verse 29, this is, this is good. She says in verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, I want you to get this. Oh, this is a woman that would not come out in public. This is a woman that just feared everybody around her. She would leave in the heat of the day so no one would look at her, so she didn't have to look at anybody. She lived her life to avoid people, and one encounter with Jesus Christ, one conversation, and she's running through the city. She's running through the city, gathering all of these men up, saying, come see a man who told me everything about me. I'm sure those men were going, ooh, did he tell you everything? She said, come see him, and he knows everything about me. Her life was radically changed. Folks, one, one, one encounter with Jesus Christ. One word from Jesus will change you for eternity. Man, you just get before him, and your life will never be the same. So she's running through here like a brand-new Christian, going crazy, saying, man, you guys got to meet this Jesus. Could he be the one? And then they went out of the city and came to Jesus. Verse 31. In the meantime, now we're back at the well with the rest of the disciples heading to the home stretch. His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Well, therefore, his disciples said to him, and one to another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus says to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is an amazing side note here. Whenever you get a chance to share the gospel, whenever you get a chance to share your story, your testimony, you're the one that gets blessed. Earlier we had Jesus sitting down. He was so tired. But when he gets to share the good news with someone that has received it and that has soaked it up, man, he gets excited. When you get a chance to share your story, man, you are going to be the one that walks away energized, folks. Come on now. Verse 35, Jesus says to them, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. This is an interesting thing that's happening towards the end here. He gathers his disciples together, and he says, Hey, guys, look out here. He takes them to the edge, you know, of the field out there, and he says, Now, look out here. You see this wheat field? Wouldn't you say that it's about four months before it's ready to be harvested? Disciples say, yeah, I'd say that's about right. He says, well, look up. For I'm telling you, the fields are wide unto harvest right now. What happened there? Did all of a sudden the fields just, just miraculously change into a white harvest that was ready to be harvested? I mean, did Jesus just snap his fingers and those, that wheat field that was four months away it magically got to the place where it was ready to be harvested? No. He said, look. 
look up. What was he having them look at? All those people that that woman had gathered in that city were coming. And Jesus points to them and says, there's the harvest. I'm telling you, get your eyes off of the fields and get your eyes up, he's saying. The fields are wide unto harvest right now. Church. (laughs) God says, look up, because the fields are wide unto harvest. The people are coming. And they need a drink from that living water that will last for an eternity. We'll skip down to verse 39 where it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, in Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Oh, church, look up. For the fields are wide unto harvest. And when I look out in those fields, I see a lot of hopelessness. I see a lot of hurting people. I see a lot of people like this woman at the well. But with just one drink, their life will be changed for eternity. I was at a funeral this past week. I didn't officiate the funeral. It was of a young 28-year-old boy that lost his life to drugs and to alcohol. I'm sad to say that the preacher was just wanting to get through the service as quick as he could. Hopelessness. I looked at the young boy's wife and his two little children. Hopelessness. All they could say about the young boy is that he enjoyed body piercing, tattoos, and studying other religions. I looked at the boy's mother that came in, the boy's father that came in, and the extended family, and there was just hopelessness. The funeral brought forth hopelessness. And it was everything inside of me, just everything I could do just to keep my seat because I wanted to jump up so bad and say, there is hope. If that young boy could be here right now, he would tell you there is a God. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that you can have hope, so that you can have life, so that you can have joy, so that you can have freedom, so that you can have victory, so that you can have power, so that you can have overcoming power. There is hope. You don't have to live the way that you live. You have a father that loves you. He's given you his name. He's given you his purpose. He's given you his vision. He's given you direction. He has a plan for your life, and it's an awesome plan. There's hope. Oh, there's so many people that need to know that there's hope, church. Man, your community where you live, your community where you work, your schools, wherever you find yourself going, there's people all around you. They're looking for hope. They are ready to receive Jesus Christ. And it's up to us to take Jesus to a hurting and dying world. I don't know about you, but I've given my life to that. And I'm going to do it. I heard the story of the young boy that was with his father out on the beach. And the young boy took his little bucket and he went out into the ocean. 
And he picked up a bunch of water and came struggling back up on the beach. And his dad was wondering, you know, what kind of big sea creature he had caught at that moment. So he says to his son, he says, hey, bud, what did you catch there? The boy looks into the bucket and he says, well, I got the ocean. His dad points out and he says, no, no, son, that's the ocean out there. Son looks at the ocean, looks back in his bucket, and he says, well, Dad, I got all I could carry. (laughs) Hey, church, let's get all we can carry. And let's go pour it out on somebody. And then you can go back to the ocean because God's never going to run out of who he is. Amen.